February the 14th, uh, Sophentine's Day, for those of you on the internet, 2016, lecture discussion number 228 on the book of Romans. And uh, for those of you who follow my internet methods, yes, you heard me correctly. This is indeed lecture 228 on the 14th of February. We bypassed February the 7th. Uh, we were succumbed. Uh, we were overwhelmed by the Super Bowl. We succumbed to the Super Bowl in case you were wondering what happened to us, and now you know. While we were gone, lots of interesting developments have come to the forefront, aside from the uh, death of Antonin Scalia, which I think is going to cause political, significant political issues. Yes, sir? Oh, I have been told that this is 229. My goodness. Well, who knew that? Obviously not me. I will go home and check. Very likely that I'm wrong. In any event, uh, uh, we missed last Sunday, in case you were wondering. I, I, I was saying in the pregame here that Antonin Scalia's uh, death is going to have reverberations politically that we aren't even aware of yet, uh, and we will see. But uh, for now, I hope you all have been following the recent uh, military responses of Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Turkey is intent on eliminating the Kurds, the Kurdish forces, which, as you know, is uh, uh, ancient Assyria, uh, effectively. And now the Saudi Arabian army is mobilizing. They're putting infantry and armor into Syria, and they say to fight ISIS, which is very likely the case. But that also allows Turkey... Uh, um, the ability to focus more so on the Kurds. The Russians and the Iranians, they're systematically destroying the Syrian rebels. So if you're a Syrian rebel, you're in a lot of trouble now. Uh, and, and that, by the way, is greatly benefiting the Syrian Assad regime. So the, uh, the Russians and the Iranians, they're propping up Assad, and they want him to prevail. Remember, Assad had weapons of mass destruction, and he used them on his own Syrian people, identically to what uh, uh, Saddam Hussein did to the Kurds. So uh, you notice that similarity. I hope you do. How much uh, chemical warfare is in the Middle East, we're going to find out later. We don't know now. We just have a, a small concept. But the, the Saudis, they're against the propping up of Assad. They want Assad to fail. They want him to fall. Uh, and so, therefore, we have now have the setting of a regional war. I'm going to tell you that, that that regional war in the Middle East is imminent. I've said it for many months now. And that's at the least. It could expand, but I'm not expecting it to do so. Right now, the United States is minimally active in that region. Barely might be more correct. And we have, as a country, left a vacuum that is being rapidly filled, and that uh, that filling of that vacuum will result in a, uh, a war very shortly, I think, uh, probably within the year. And everyone is watching the Israelis. The Israelis uh, should be watched. All of us should watch the Israelis. The Israelis are aware well aware that they are the eventual target of all of this. This is the precursor to the eventual attack of Israel. If that attack of Israel occurs, that's significant, as you know. That changes your life, changes my life. We are changed forever 
by that because we will see physical evidence. We will be a generation that sees the war of Ezekiel 38. And this is all stuff I have said many, many times, as you know. But I just want you to, uh, I can't reemphasize it enough. The last two weeks have been extraordinary. Israelis are going to take any preemptive opportunity they can get. They're going to seize it. So as this ever-growing cancerous, this malignancy in the Middle East begins to expand and become worse and worse, the Israelis are going to see an opportunity. And they will not miss it this time. They have drilled into them. To wait is to be destroyed. Hitler and Stalin made it very clear the only way for them to survive is to preemptively act. So the Russians now, and to recap this, the Russians and the Iranians and the Syrians have joined to preserve Assad, and therefore by extension, by default, they're ignoring ISIS. And ISIS is surviving in Syria. And ISIS is also selling oil in that region as well. But the U.S.-backed Syrian rebels are being destroyed, being crushed. Watch the city of Aleppo in the next coming days. Aleppo could fall tomorrow. Could have fallen today. We'll find out. So pay attention to what's happening to the U.S.-backed Syrian uh, rebels in the city of Aleppo. As of now, the Saudis and the Turks are moving towards ISIS. They're going to hit the ISIS-held capital, if you will, for lack of a better term, of Raqqa. Along with this action, the Turks are going to continue to bomb the Kurds, much to the delight of the Iranians. The Iranians want to see the Kurds degraded because they don't have a large enough population to produce infantry. And so anything that damages the Kurds makes it easier for the Iranians to sweep through all of Iraq or Babylon, if you wish to call it that, which would be correct. The United States is completely impotent and confused. No surprise there. And the Israelis are poised to take advantage of all of this. The Saudis hate Iran, Iran hates the Saudis. We have a conflict in Yemen that is Iran-based against the Saudis. The Saudis are moving towards ISIS. So ask the obvious question. Why would the Saudis move towards ISIS? Why wouldn't they go after the Iranian-based Houthi rebels in Yemen? That's the Straits of Hormuz. That's that's the uh, ability to control the Gulf. Why don't they go after the... uh, Yemeni uh, forces that are backed by Iran. Instead, the Saudis are mobilizing into Syria. You make that, you figure that out, and you'll understand what's coming next. All of this is about what for the Saudis? They want to destroy those nuclear facilities. They don't have the capability. Who has the capability? The Israelis. The Saudis think one of the best ways to destroy the nuclear capabilities of the Iranians is to move into Syria. How does that work? What would stop the uh, the Israelis from hitting Iran? Who is the Russian? uh, Who is the Iran? I gave it away there. Who uh, who is the uh, Iranian uh, ally right now in that region? That's the Russians. Where are the Russians? They're in Syria. Who's now in Syria? The Saudis and the Turks. So you're, you're seeing this circle merry-go-round thing going all along. The uh, Israelis have permission to overfly Egypt. I'm sorry, overfly uh, Saudi Arabian airspace 
to hit for the specific reason of hitting the Iranian nuclear systems. So all of that is tied together. It could happen so quickly that we would be astonished. So pay attention. And as expected, finally on the end of this, as and mostly this is repeating of what I've said in the past, I just didn't want to pass it up after being off a week. I wanted you to know things are happening quickly. They always do. I wish my father was here. He would stand up here and tell you how fast World War II happened. Just one day everything was fine. The next day Hitler had moved into Poland, Czechoslovakia, and was sweeping towards France. happened so fast. There was hardly any time to re- re- react to it. That's how it will go again. Prepare for that. And again, as expected, what's Pakistan doing now? That's a nuclear power. What are they doing? They have come out and sided with the Saudis. So I have Iran in the middle of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. And Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, Arabia are now in concert. And by the way, Egypt has signed a document here in December saying that they are on the side of who? Saudi Arabia. The only one that didn't sign the document is Iran. Everybody knows everybody now. So watch, uh, and that's why the Iranians are, are with the Russians. And there's this, this urgency in Syria to take out those rebels and to uh, take down the Kurds. So keep watching. That's what we're supposed to do. Watch, therefore. Take, that's why, if you get time, uh, sign up for, uh, uh, I can't think of a, a better access for you if uh, you don't do this on your own. I know many of you do. Okay. Next. We have a ways to go before I get to the lecture. Perhaps you noticed the announcement recently from the Advanced Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory. It's interferometry, interferometric, if you, uh, whichever way you wish to uh, place it, but um, it's LIGO. Laser Interferometry, Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory. They proclaimed that they found that they detected, as predicted by Einstein in 1916, gravitational waves. You, you remember my uh, prophecy, now it's over a year ago, on, in January, where I said, watch for this gravitational wave uh, uh, development. I didn't, uh, uh, I'll go get into that in a minute, I, I don't know if you remember what I said, but gravitational waves, uh, they think they've detected them, and they've de- declared that they have, and they, of course, are, are generated by astronomical events, such as the merging of black holes. They say the merging of black holes creates this gravitational ripple, which is detectable. And uh, you will immediately ask, and I'm glad that some of you did not come today. <laughs> As I'm writing this, I'm going, oh, this is going to bore this person, this person. I had about 15 names on it. None of them came. God protecting me. Anyway, why is this of any interest to anybody, you will ask? Well, um, maybe it's not, but I want it to be interesting to you uh, as much as I can. Einstein, as you know, proposed a relativistic uh, theory of gravity. That may not mean anything to you. I'm using the terms to get you used to them as much as I can because they're coming to the news now. And it's important uh, in the sense that uh, things are going to happen as we begin to study gravity. Uh, that changes physics. 
That is a marvelous thing, ultimately. Let me back up. Einstein has a theory of relativity, general theory of relativity, to be more precise. In his theory of his general theory of relativity is in contrast. It's actually in conflict with Isaac Newton's description of gravitational phenomena. So I have one side, if you will, and 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 I should say this: Einstein is not the only one with a relativistic view of gravity. There's others that have the same similar type theory. But let's just take Einstein and put him in conflict with Isaac Newton. And this is ultimately the question of what is gravity? You don't question gravity. None of us do. Gravity is everywhere. I'm going to make a statement about the ubiquity of gravity. We, we don't even consider gravity. But the scientific community is, it knows the importance of it. I never ask what is gravity. What do I always ask? You can get my theological perspective really quickly by my question. I always ask who is gravity? Not what. That's what Isaac Newton asked. And Newton concluded that gravitational force is, a ca- is caused by the mass of a material object. In other words, he saw gravity as a force. Einstein said, no, that's not what gravity is. Gravitational elements or phenomena is the result of a distortion, of the distortion of what uh, what we now call space and time or space-time. means nothing to you. I know. Again, I'm just getting the verbiage to you. At some point, it's going to be there for you as this begins to accelerate. I'm looking at the acceleration of the Middle East War and the acceleration of quantum physics simultaneously, and I'm going, that is not an accident. That is occurring because we are at the end of the age of the Gentiles. These are two very important signs. Again, Einstein said gravity is not a force. It's the result of the distortion of space and time as well as the connectivity of mass, energy, and momentum. And so he has a different theory of what is gravity. So again, you ask, why should anybody care about this? Well, we need, for that, we're going to have to address three classical tests of Einstein's uh, theory. Some say two and a half, some say four, uh, but we're not going to do that today. All that we're going to do today is begin to introduce it to you, let you understand that uh, LIGO has come out and said they've detected something about gravity that's very important. We'll compare gravity probe A from the 1960s and gravity probe B with LIGO and try to see if we can figure some of this out. Much to the delight of no one ever. I got that. but uh, Trust me, it's coming for you. You see, gravitational waves are light speed events at minimum. Notice how I said that. I said gravitational waves, if they exist, are light speed events at minimum. That means uh, that's the slowest they move is at light speed. Can anything go faster than the speed of light? Einstein says no so far. C is unviolable. But my point is, is if they are light speed events, detection is not certain. Physicists know that laser interferometry shows a predisposition to false positives. So don't get too excited that they've detected gravitational waves. 
They will concede that maybe they haven't. We will wait. So why is an exciting discussion to somebody other than me? Because again, the question of what is gravity is the magnificent question of physics. It's the magnificent question of Isaac Newton. It's the magnificent question of theology. Resolving the mechanism or the agency of gravity is going to force the scientific community to confront the origin of gravity. Gravity has this inherent aspect, this uh, fine-tunedness, if you will. What I mean is that gravity, along with many, many other uh, components in our physical universe, almost uncountable actually, but gravity is perfectly designed, perfectly designed. It functions perfectly. An intelligent mind is obvious in my opinion. Again, gravity is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So every inquiry into gravity is inevitably a search for the mind that designed it. The mind who conceived it, who perceives it, brings reality to gravity. Reality requires perception. Gravity is one of the most amazing examples of of reality through perception. You can only see the results of gravity. You can only describe it. We have no idea what it is. So, that's why it's so incredible. And it's coming. We're trying to figure it out as a physical. The physical scientists are trying to find God. That, I think, is a delightful thing. What happens if they do it? That means he wanted them to, huh? The ancient, uh, if you will, the oldest uh, physicists uh, of, of our history always knew what they were doing. They always knew they were following the footsteps, the footprints, um, and the fingerprints of God. That has changed somewhat in our uh, um, our atheistic culture of today. But they will find those footprints, those fingerprints whether they are searching for them or not. That'll be cool. Okay, while I'm running around and getting so much today, a couple other things came under the uh, heading. I call this, I used to call it things I learned from television. Today I'm calling it uh, things I've learned from politicians. In this case, it's the theological proposal from uh, proposals from members of Congress. What could possibly go wrong, politicians talking about theology? It's... Uh, Uh, politicians standing up to explain a scripture. Uh, They're so good at this. Maybe not. The first of these comes from the current Speaker of the House, who shall be be unnamed by me, Paul Ryan. Jesus walked among... Here's what he said. Bless his heart. I'm sure he's a good guy. Uh, I hope he is. He's a leader of this country. Is he a theologian? Well, let's find out. He said this. Jesus walked among the poor. So far, so good. And the lowly in this world. Wish he had stopped there. But no. 
The speaker had to keep going. Jesus walked among the poor and the lowly in this world so that he could to new heights. Jesus walked among the poor and the lowly in this world so that he could raise up to new heights in the next. Let me repeat it. Jesus walked among the poor and the lowly in this world so that he, Jesus, could raise up to new heights in the next world, essentially. That was the implication and the exact quote uh, all combined from the Speaker of the House. Now, where do I start with this? Well, let me try. Notice again what is being said here, that uh, the, the stated person, the purpose of this. The reason that Jesus walked among humanity was to reach a new height. What's, uh, what's proposed in that sentence? That it's possible for Jesus to attain a new height. Is it possible for Jesus to attain a new height? If you're talking location... Perhaps I should politely remind the speaker that Jesus Christ is already at all times before time the infinite almighty God of creation. John 1, 1 through 3, John 8, 24, John 8, 58. There is no new height with regard to rank. So, Jesus Christ is not subject to time. He is the creator of time. He is the author of gravity. There, see, I brought that back. Energy. He's the absolute observer. He's infinite again. How, how tall is infinity? Uh, what rank is infinity? It is very disrespectful to imply otherwise in any way. That fact stops no one ever again. Why do politicians insist on uh, this portrayal of Christ as somebody who can reach a higher level of understanding or authority? It puts him inside of time, for one, and takes away his infinity and his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnibenevolence. You will understand why. If he is at a position that is lower uh, in rank, if he is subject to, then uh, then he is not infinite God. Uh, this is a this is Bill the Cow actually. A wonderfully, we never talked to each other about anything with regard to the lecture or the pregame. But in Bill's pregame, just a few minutes ago, he asked a really good question: uh, How many times can Jesus Christ be Savior? What the if I got it right, I mean. Repeated a little bit differently. If Jesus was unable to to save enough people the first time, why not come back a second time, a third time, a fourth time, and just keep coming back? Well, that question presupposes, obviously, that he's not God. Do you understand that? Because that would only apply to somebody that, that was lower than God. I will tell you that that is the implication and the purpose of the Speaker of the House, that Jesus was lower than God in authority. And he had to walk down here and be amongst the lowly and the poor in order to reach a higher level. He didn't say, 
Godhood, did he? He said a new height. Well, how high is the new height? So, why do politicians do this uh, without a wisp of understanding? I, I have a, I have a reason they do it. I think this is the central congruency of the media and politics. I have noticed that all of those, all of the media, including the entertainment media and all of the political class, are very eager to insert themselves as expert on biblical doctrine, absent of any comprehension. It is simultaneously maddening and destructive to do so. And so I always ask, what hubris causes this? Where I've given you the answer in the question, right? Politics and entertainment have a tendency to draw a certain kind of personality. Beware of them. I think we're seeing that played out on our current political stage. I will say that there are obviously some men and uh, women, I will not name any names, who have genuine understanding of the gravity. See how I got that word back in there? of the political system in this country and the importance of it. But there are others who are simply self-aggrandizing. And they're doing it for their own personal purposes. And uh, those people are dangerous to a country. All you have to do is read the Bible and see the evil kings and the good kings. How many evil kings are there? Lots of evil kings. How many good kings were there? Not very many. But the ones that were... We're honored by God. Okay, last one I promise before we start the lecture. Before we uh, revert back to Numbers 21 and Genesis 19, which are my two most recent spinning plates. Another congressional representative weighed in on salvation with the observation that salvation was the product of repentance and baptism. So... That's what it is. Salvation is repentance and baptism. Do you agree with that? Well, let's ask some questions. It is, uh, it's always nice to ask questions. Two really quick ones right off the bat. Is it possible to be baptized and not be saved? Happens all the time. So if baptism is essential for salvation or is involved in salvation in any way, how are we doing so far with it? Is it possible, is it feasible as well to repent and still reject Christ's blood atonement? Depends on your definition of repentance. How would you define repentance? Never raise your hand here. Okay, change of thought towards what? What actions? Which sin? Name one. Don't name one of yours. Name one of, name one of uh, Eric's. He's in your same table. What's that? Gluttony. Yes, that's, that defines Eric. <laughs> Never name your own sins here because we write them down. We put them on the internet and we come after you asking for tithes and offerings, right? That's how we do it, Eric. That's what all churches do. Blackmail. How do you think we got those big buildings? Okay. He says, repent of gluttony. Okay? That's great. 
if I spelled it right. Probably didn't. Let me ask more questions then. Let's continue. There's hardly a case when you can't ask more questions. Uh, you, that where more questions can't be found. Logically, if it's if it makes sense in the middle, it will make sense on the extremes. If you find it doesn't make sense on the extremes, begin to question whether or not it makes sense in the middle either. Something might seem to be right, but then keep asking questions and find out how right it is. Is it always right? So uh, uh, let's keep going here. Is uh, salvation temporal or is it eternal? Well, we would all answer it is eternal. It is eternal without debate, though many continue to debate otherwise. Always those who do so without exception are wrong. Salvation is always eternal. It is never temporal. So let's ask, is repentance temporal? Especially with respect to gluttony. Of which I am an offender, as the physical evidence demonstrates. How much of repentance with regard to gluttony is re-repentance? Does that make sense? And let me keep going. How much of repentance of, with respect to gluttony is re-re-re-re-re-repentance? How much repentance am I doing with regard to uh, Not enough, obviously. But how much of repentance, when it has to do with a specific sin, is re-repentance? In which case, is repentance eternal or temporal? Is baptism, how much re-baptism is going on? Repentance of sin is in contrast with unbelief, in the sense that I need to sin of my not of gluttony, but of the sin, repent of the sin of unbelief. I E F, sorry. Now I obliterated the E or the I. Repent of the sin of unbelief. Now ask the obvious question. What is the difference of this? What is the opposite of the sin of unbelief? The opposite of unbelief is belief. So if I have repented of the sin of unbelief, then what have I done? I have believed. If I have believed, do I have to re-believe? You see the difference now? Salvation is obviously repentance of the sin of unbelief. Or, if you will, belief. That is salvation. These are evidences of salvation. Baptism is a witness of salvation. It is a witness of belief. Repentance is, a, is an admission of belief. I repent because I believe. So you have three things and you have to put them in order. I won't do it for you. I have belief. I have repentance. And I will admit that uh, there, is a, there is a connection between the three. But put them in the correct order. 
you put them in their proper order with respect to salvation and then answer the question if the Congress person had done it properly. Okay, I'm going to endeavor to proceed. I got plates spinning from the previous weeks and, and, and the question becomes what plate of the spinning plates from the previous weeks is wobbly? And the answer is what? All of them are wobbly. And so which plate then is the most wobbly? And again, the answer is they're all the most wobbly, right? They're all about to fall. And so I gotta have to just pick one like always. I get to pick because I have the holy dry erase mar- uh, marker. Uh, so I'm going to pick one, and I, you know, you won't like it, but it's okay. I get to do it. To quickly remind everybody where we are, basically we got off of two tracks we've been dealing with recently. One being the lifted up bronze serpent, Numbers 21, and this is a discussion of belief, salvation. That's why. I wanted to make sure that you were understanding how it all works together. The lifted up bronze serpent of Numbers 21, which immediately took us to John uh, 3. Let's put this underneath here. John 3, 14 through 17. Most people know, of course, John 3.16, but I say all the time, don't separate out John 3.16 from 14.15 and 17, or actually almost all of chapter 3. Um, don't do that. Train yourself. That I've got to keep that whole context of John 3.14 through 17. 3.14 and 15 is about the bronze serpent. So we know that John 3.16 is about the bronze serpent. And then we went to, we went from Numbers 21. Uh, we went we were in Luke 14 and 15, mostly 14:25 through 15. That's where we were. Those are the two of uh, uh, spinning plate. And Luke 14:25 through all the way through Luke 15, which is the found son. The, the, here I have the. I have the priority of love. You remember that? I have the carrying of the crossbeam or the collapsing under the crossbeam, which proves that Christ did not struggle with the crossbeam ever because to do so was to confess that he was guilty in Roman law. So he would never have done that. There's no possibility that infinite God is struggling with a crossbeam. That's silly. Get that out of your head. That explains why uh, Simon the Cyrenian, one of the Simeons, if you will, of the Simeon prophecy, was given that crossbeam because Christ was not struggling under it at all. In fact, the opposite was evident and the Romans began to panic. In my belief, and I think that that's obviously the case. But so I had the, I had the priority, I had the loved and loved less. I had the crossbeam of the tower that was destroyed, the surrendering king, and salt is good. We leave that to go to the found sheep, the found coin, and the found son. So those are the two plates that are about to crash onto the ground. And now, I hope you recall some of that. I know it's been a couple of weeks. But what I really wanted to do today is reemphasize Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 17. Get asked all the time, what's my favorite verse in the Bible? And I tell them Deuteronomy 18.15. And that uh, usually results in blank stares at me. But let me read it to you again. The Lord thy God will raise unto thee the prophet from the midst of thee, 
of thy brethren like unto me. Him you shall hear. Two key phrases. Are these like unto me? Moses is saying God is going to raise up the prophet. You might say a prophet in your um, translation, but it is singular. It means the prophet from the midst of the of thy brethren. In other words, out of the nation of Israel, the prophet will come, and that prophet will be like unto me. Moses is saying that, and so that means the prophet will be like unto Moses, and him you shall hear. And Moses says to Israel that the coming Messiah will then have evidences of Moses. So, proofs of his Messiahship will be things that God placed into the life of Moses. So, if you want to find out who the prophet is, he will have evidences of Moses in his life. So he will take things out of Moses' life and do them in a way that leads us back to see Moses. It will be like unto me, and him you shall hear. God repeats this in Deuteronomy 18.17. And God himself says, I will raise up for them the prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren. Deuteronomy 18.19. So let's go ahead and add 19 now. 15 through 19. says this, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words... I keep emphasizing here. I want you to get here. Something about this prophet and hearing are joined together. So, this prophet will have something to say about hearing. So, God repeats this again. Let me continue. In 18.19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In other words, to put that in a way that you might understand it better. Uh, God says that he's whoever will not hear my words, which the prophet that looks or that has elements of Moses incorporated in him, so that you can tell that that's the prophet, the prophet will have the words of God, and anyone who does not hear, God will require it of him. So, the it in that sentence is accountability, judgment, failure to hear is going to, re- is going to be required. God will require from you. Prophet, as God defines hearing, is established as the means of salvation. If you don't hear the prophet, it shall be required. In other words, if you don't hear the prophet who has the words of God in him, who speaks the the my words, you are not saved. And you can tell that this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, this is salvation, because you can look at what he does and read about Moses and put the two together and they will fit. And anybody who has that continuity with Moses is the prophet, is the Messiah.
Who has had that in all of history? Who has been like unto Moses? Only one person. And that person is identified as the prophet. So, all of the words of God are in the prophet. Ask the obvious question. The prophet will carry aspects of Moses. By the way, they found over 500 things that Christ did that trace back to Moses' recorded life. There are people devoted their whole lives to proving that Christ is God and Christ is the prophet of 1815, which makes him God. But How many words does the infinite God have? Because they're all in the prophet. What is the, what's necessary, how big of a container do I have to have, ask this a lot, to contain infinite words? I have to have an infinite container. So you see immediately just by basic math that the fact that he has the words of God in him, then that means he must be God himself, right? So, the prophet will be God. He will have all the words of God. He will have aspects of Moses' life so that you can identify him as God and prove that he is God. And then you must hear him. And if you don't hear him, if you choose to reject his hearing him, then that will be held in account. God will require that you stand before him in judgment. Just for fun here, ask how many words were spoken to cause the existence of the physical reality? From nothing. How many words were spoken to create the angelic realm? How many pieces are in the physical reality? That's what makes gravity so much interesting to me. How many pieces are there? Just just count them someday. Just go to, to, to some internet system and how many pieces are in the universe? What do they correspond to? Do you think he just made a whole bunch of stuff that had no correspondence? And it's all intricately combined so that if one, one galaxy is out of the correct location, it would gravitationally affect all these other things, wouldn't it? But it all runs perfectly. It's all doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Now, how many words to do that? How much information would be the better way to put it? The information theory is now where you are. How much information is there in the universe? All of that is in the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. Anyway, Jesus Christ willfully employed attributes of Moses for the purposes of revealing his true identity to the nation of Israel and by extension to us. So, that's what God did. He took Moses and he, he assimilated. Now, listen, he's outside of time, so he is before Moses. But we're human beings, so we're going to look at it inside of time incorrectly. We're going to look at Moses and what he did and take all of those characteristics of Moses, of which the Bible has thousands of them, and we're going to find out how many of them apply to Christ. And if he has, has them, then he is God. So that is one of the great proofs of the deity of Christ. So Jesus Christ willfully employed those attributes of Moses for the purposes of revealing who he really is to us. Now, 
perhaps it could be argued that this lifting up of the bronze servant, a serpent, sorry, by Moses was Moses' preeminent typological act. What I mean by that is when Moses lifted up that bronze serpent as a means of, of saving lives, that is salvation, by those who gazed at it. The word means intently. I got a wonderful letter from a man named John, I think from Brazil, wanting me to ask, wanting me to ask you essentially, how intently did you look? And I, of course, haven't answered him back yet, but you know I brought up a couple of weeks ago. Did the blind people, uh, were they saved? How many blind people in those two million that were looking at that bronze serpent got saved? So, anyway, that's just for fun. Do you do that for fun. But it could be argued that the lifting up of the bronze serpent in the wilderness was Moses' preeminent typological act. In other words, that's the act that most portrays Christ of Moses, of everything he did. And Christ goes in John 3, 13 through 17, and he says that it is me, I am that bronze serpent. So he identifies it as something that Moses did that applies to Christ. So what Moses was doing and what Christ did has a relationship with regard to Numbers 21. Okay? And by the way, don't make the mistake of separating out Proverbs 30 from Numbers 21. Uh, because Proverbs 30 is, is in John 3, 13, 14, 15. It's in, in all of it. So uh, uh, more on that next week. For today, notice... That at Luke 14.25, the two plates, right? That Christ had words to the great multitudes that were following him. And I made the connection. I said, Moses had a great multitude of dying people following him. Millions. At least two million. Christ had maybe hundreds of thousands following him at Luke 14.25. And he gave them these words. He gave them the love more and the love less, the bearing of the crossbeam, the tower, the surrounding king, and salt is good. That's the order of the words of Christ in Luke 14, 25, all the way to 15. And when he, when he ended all of that, he said, let him who have ears to hear, hear. Let him hear. So as soon as I read that, I know there's got to be a lifting up of the bronze serpent. I know that, of course, is a crucifixion. But I've also got to have these other elements in here somewhere. And I have hearing. Whenever Christ says hearing, I know that he is probably talking about 1815 of Deuteronomy. The prophet must be heard. The prophet will be like unto Moses. The prophet will be lifted up. The point being that Deuteronomy 18:15 through 17 must be considered with everything that Christ says and does, especially if he mentions hearing. When he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Man, lights and buzzers should go back. A good should go off and you're back at Deuteronomy 18:15. The key to understanding Scripture is to always compare Scripture with Scripture and try to find Christ. If you're, if you're just reading one passage and you never compare it to another passage, you have failed. 
you are probably wrong in what you think that passage means. Okay, let me be more definitive. You are overwhelmingly likely to be wrong when you read it if you don't compare it. Searching for the meaning of the bronze serpent. People ask me all the time, what's the meaning of the bronze serpent? I probably get that question more than any other internet question. If you're going to do that, collect all the passages that contain serpents and start comparing them. Get all the passages that contain bronze and get all the passages that are lifted up and put them all together. Let's just do one. Aaron had a rod. Did I lose myself again? Nope, there I'm back. Aaron has a rod. And the broad serpent. That would be a good start, for example. I get a lot of questions on Lot's wife all the time, asking me, how did I get Lot's wife? How did you figure this out? How do you think this way? You're too weird for me. And all I did was just compare every Lot and Lot's wife passage. I began with the premise that the Bible is deliberately connected. The singular purpose of revealing Jesus Christ. That's what it's trying to do. So I go get Lot's wife. I find out she connects to Sarah because they both tried to make a, a dinner. Now all they really did was make unleavened bread, but there was no evidence that Lot's wife was even at the dinner or, or made the bread, right? That's from a couple of weeks ago. But I got Sarah and, and Lot, and Sarah goes to Eve. So therefore I got Lot to Eve, and I got Lot to Noah all over the Bible, especially the New Testament. And Noah goes to Adam. Now I've got Lot to Adam. Lot connects to Esau. Esau connects to Jacob. Esau connects to Leah. Lot connects to Abraham. Sodom is sent for the Lot. Salt is all about Lot's wife. It's first mentioned, Lot's wife, salt, pillars, critical to understanding Lot's wife. So go, I gotta go get all the salt passages. It's a life, lifetime of study. Salt is good, Leviticus 2. That's how you figure it out. So now, I got the bronze serpent, and I got Aaron's rod. Why do I have Aaron's rod? Because I'm collecting serpents. Exodus 7, 8 through 13. Don't have time to read it. Aaron's rod is cast down and it became a serpent. Ooh, that's cool. I got a bronze serpent. The wise men of Pharaoh, every single one of them, it says, every man, they all had rods. A bunch of rods there. How many wise men do you think there were? You decide. But I got a whole bunch of them. Aaron comes in and Moses. And Moses has Aaron throw his rod down. And it became a serpent. The rods of all of every man, Exodus 7, 8 through 13, are thrown down. How much time passed? I got a serpent. He's on the floor. What's he look like? How big is he? Wise men of Pharaoh come in, they look around, come up with a plan, every one of them threw down their rods, it says. That's a key detail. Nobody said, well, I think I'll just hold mine back here. And their rods became serpents. How many serpents I got now? But the rod of Moses and Aaron did what? It's, it's swallowed up. And it, by the way, it says that. The rod of Moses 
And Aaron, or Aaron, swallowed up the rods of the Pharaoh's wise men. Can't miss that detail. It doesn't say the snake ate the snakes. It says the rod ate the rods. Well, that's interesting. Why? It does not say, again, the serpent of Aaron swallows the serpent of the wise men. Rods swallow rods. Obviously, at the end of this, Moses grabs his serpent and he has the rod back. The wise men of Pharaoh, what's their predicament right now? They got no rods. They done give up their rods. What did they use their rods for? Obviously, their rods could hit the ground and become serpents. It never occurred to them. When they saw a serpent on the ground come from a rod, they all got together and decided, well, what are we going to do? That is probably a big serpent. What do we got? We got lots of little serpents. We're going to throw ours on the ground. Had they ever done it before? First time they said, ooh, let's throw them down, see if they become rods. Did they deliberate? I always want to know, did they have a committee meeting? What's going to happen when we throw these rods down here? Well, let's do it. So we have a whole bunch of little snakes against one big snake. Who wins? Big snake wins. Eats every single snake. Yes, sir. Well, it's, that's a very good question, by the way. We'll have to get to that. Why does it, why is it called in scripture Aaron's rod and Moses' rod? And it seems to be indistinguishable. But I'm, for the sake of time, I won't deviate into that. Holy mackerel, gotta hurry. Obviously, at the end of this, again, Moses has his rod back, and the wise men of Pharaohs have no rods. Every single wise man lost his rods. Rod. And I, I look at this like I would handguns. Moses and Aaron just disarmed all the Pharaoh's wise men. They have the only loaded rod now. Consider the room. Consider what they're thinking. We have no weapons. These guys have a weapon. We don't have one. We're just standing here. Oops. Note that Jesus Christ carries a rod, Revelation 2.27. Note Isaiah 11.1, 1, the rod of Jesse brings forth the branch. Note that now I have two serpents, Numbers 21 and Exodus 7, that speak of Christ. Why is a serpent that is the symbol of sin and death, how does that speak of Christ? One of the serpents is lifted up in bronze, in bronze. The other is cast down and swallows the rods of Pharaoh's wise men who seek to do what? They seek to extinguish Israel. Pharaoh would not release Israel. And so God, Christ, must pry his people from the hand of the Pharaoh. So if you apply the rod to Christ, Christ swallows up a whole brood of vipers. We start comparing those two passages as we will next week. That will lead us to a true understanding of the meanings of both.